From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, David Barton Grimley, Fintech Strategy Director at 11FS. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking Elon Musk plans to launch peer-to-peer payments on X, formerly Twitter. We discuss potential use cases, what we think this might mean, their overall strategy, and maybe a healthy dose of skepticism. Next up, we talk about embedded finance firm Andaria announcing a new partnership with MasterCard. Very interesting conversation around new types of use cases for embedded payments, particularly in the sports and membership sector. Um, And then finally, watch out for those pesky potholes. Insurance claims are at an all-time high, according to Admiral. We discuss who on earth has actually claimed for a pothole And we talk about my atrocious, useless sports car, um, which I'm sure everyone will be interested to hear. We get into all of this and more on today's show. Hello, a very happy new year to you all, and welcome to episode 817 of Fintech Insider. I'm David Barton Grimley, Fintech Strategy Director here at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three great guests who are here to break down the biggest news stories in fintech and financial services. First, a big hello to my co-host, Rachel Panjin, Ventures Product Lead at 11FS. Rachel, what exciting top secret things have you been working on lately? I I feel the whole thing with top secret means that I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it. Um, But I can say in ventures, we have not had a quiet start to the new year. We are about to embark on three projects all kicking off next week at the same time. So all hands on deck, all very busy and doing some new and interesting stuff. So yeah, you're just going to have to watch this space. Nice. Yep, it's a lot. Um, And we're also delighted to be joined by Nirav Patel, CEO at Andaria Financial Services. Welcome, Nirav. It's great to have you here. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at Andaria. Sure. Um, Thank you, David and Rachel, for for having me. I'm currently serving as CEO at Andaria. And in a nutshell, I think I've, I've built, I guess, over my tenure here, a real passion about embedded finance. I feel the industry is kind of at the precipice of really evolving the landscape, but kind of not financial, maybe for non-financial businesses. Um, At Andaria, my role revolves around kind of implementing and empowering the team to go and deliver our strategic vision. Um, It's an exciting position that allows me to really explore kind of my entrepreneurial side um, while growing a business from its kind of very foundation. Um, I'm kind of in love with the art of the start, if you like, um, and kind of really breaking some milestones and and frontiers. Um, I guess outside of my day-to-day, I'm an avid reader, um, but my, I guess, the one thing I really believe in and really believe in what we're doing at Andaria is is that culture is key in our organization. And the reason that's important, at least from a personal standpoint, is that culture not only kind of gets you through good strategy, but it actually can pull you through bad strategy. Um, really excited to be here today and really looking forward to diving into our discussion. Awesome. It's great to have you. And last but not least, and a big 2024 welcome back to Fintech Insider 4. I feel like I need a drum roll here. Jason McCullough, founder of Fintech Business Weekly. Welcome to the show. For those who still don't know, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's great to be back. Uh, as you mentioned, I uh, publish FinTech Business Weekly, which is a weekly newsletter focused on the latest in banking, FinTech. A lot of banking as a service related content last year. I, I imagine that's going to continue crypto every once in a while. So uh, looking forward to the show. All right. And with that, let's jump into the news. So our main story this week, probably not too surprising um, to a lot of you, is X, formerly Twitter, to add peer-to-peer payments in 2024. And this one's from Payments. Elon Musk, who bought the social media platform for $44 billion last year, has previously stated his ambition to transform X into the everything app. The launch of the peer-to-peer payments is the first step towards X's move into finance. This comes less than a month after X announced three new money transmitter licenses had been granted in the US. X is set to revolutionize 2024 with groundbreaking products and services that will reshape how we connect, communicate, and transact, the company said. 
Musk was the co-founder of PayPal, which was bought by eBay in 2002, and then turned his attention to electric cars and rocket ships before his big money acquisition of Twitter, for those of you who don't know who Elon Musk is. <laughs> Gosh, I feel like we have been waiting for this news for a very long time and also talking about it for a very long time. So here we go. It's finally happening. Jason, what's your reaction to this? I mean, I... I <laughs> Always a good start. If, 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 it were any, if it were any other, more or less any other company, it would not be news that they had acquired 13 or 14 money transmitter licenses, right? It, 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 they're still quite a ways off from having coverage across the United States, let alone coverage around the world to actually operate the kind of peer-to-peer payment platform that, that Musk is describing. Now, I'm like nervous to ever bet against him because, you know, clearly uh, satellites in orbit Tesla, boring company, you know, et cetera. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that 13 or 14 MTLs, you know, does not a payment company make. Uh, and on top of that, you know, the primary use case that that is being discussed in, in the most recent reporting that you're citing is a peer-to-peer payment mechanism. You know, one, there's plenty of these services that already exist in the United States, notably Venmo, Cash App, and Zelle that basically, you know, control the entire market. I don't really see what the competitive advantage here is, you know, other than trying to sort of convince people who are already on X to use this capability, which... I view as probably an uphill battle. And on top of that, it's also worth remembering peer-to-peer payments is is not a money-making business. Venmo lost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and and I think continues to lose a lot of money operating that business. So I, I'm on the one hand, like, yes, I'm sure this is the story we're all going to be watching and talking about for the next year. Um, but I remain, you know, quite skeptical about, you know the success or or sort of being accretive to X's, you know, top line or bottom line revenue and, and earnings. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I suppose at least we can credit him with apparently following through on his promise. Rachel, would you bank with Twitter? I mean, X, sorry, not, not Twitter. X. <laughs> uh, I I mean, I can't say I would, but I, I am also, I know I'm one of those people who's particularly conscious about what I do with social media platforms and how I use them. Um, I think, you know, from an X perspective, we we talk about he's following through on his promise. He, they said, I was reading their um, blog post, the, the big blog post that talked about peer-to-peer payments. And they said that 2023 was foundational and 2024 is meant to be transformational. But I think to your point, Jason, there, it's it's still in its, in its early days. And we have to also consider this with X's performance. Their valuation has shot down since being acquired. Moreover, their users have shot down. And so, yep, great, try and set up this all-encompassing payments, everything app. But to whom? And with the aspirations to become like a WeChat or a super app in the in the regions where it's worked well, it's where there weren't really good conventional banking services. We're talking about the US. And while the fintech ecosystem there it's still in its infancy in a lot of ways it is it's pretty mature and trying to create a super app with a smaller user group as niche as that may be still doesn't feel like something that is going to be a winner in 2024 i'm not seeing transformational probably still a little bit more foundational for now at least yeah i suppose what they they might say is that well they have just such a phenomenally large user base that maybe the users of x would you know, naturally be inclined perhaps to use some of their P2P services because it's embedded with what they do. I suppose then the question lies, well, we'll, we'll do what for what purpose, as, mm. as both of you have already said. I mean, it's worth noting that when X was actually Twitter, um, they had introduced tips um, so users could send one-off payments. Um, and that's definitely interesting, um, you know, for the content creator community. But it's difficult to see how this completely differentiates i mean as a as a thought experiment as a kind of a non non-scientific survey in 2023 we asked people um whether they would bank with twitter and um only 17 percent yes 83 percent of people said no 
So yeah, it is difficult to see where this goes. Um, Nirav, I'm I'm keen to get your point of view in this from an embedded finance, you know, point of point of view. And in some ways, this is, I guess, embedded finance. We're embedding payments into a into a content platform. How far do you think X slash Twitter could really go? I, I think I think I would mirror the general thoughts of the rest of the room. I'm I think foundational by no means transformational. I think you touched on it. I think 17% is probably being quite nice as well that would go and take that up. Um, So for me, I think it's maybe where, as we said, the US market, it's a a saturated market from from a payment standpoint. I think that maybe curtails how far X can go with this. However, on the flip of that, let's take um, Facebook or, or Meta. I feel like they would have a more a, a larger opportunity purely because of where they've been. And the example I tend to use is the marketplace, for example. So you go and buy something today, you're either paying in cash or a bank transfer. There, you could arguably see a use case because there's a material exchange of goods, services for, for cash or for payments. So I think there are opportunities from an embedded finance point of view on social platforms. I think where that gets interesting are less on your mainstream ones. I think the the new ones that have uh, amassed a following and want to enhance their product or service definitely has an opportunity, but it's generally a niche solution. Um, ones that come to mind are potentially kind of blockchain or crypto as as social platforms. So not not necessarily out outright exchanges, but those that are kind of educational platforms in that space, there you can see maybe a route for it. But I say as a whole, um, definitely an opportunity, but I think you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I suppose you're right. If you elevate the conversation to the social payments and social commerce sphere, um, TikTok are doing it, Facebook are doing it. Um, And uh, Jason, I guess, question for you, what are your thoughts on the wider growth of of social payments or embedded payments within social media? You know, are these social media firms actually becoming fintechs or banks in disguise? Yeah, I mean, I I think the the use case of uh, social commerce is is a really good practical example of of where this could be used. I, I find that to be quite distinct from the notion of it serving as a you know, competitive or replacement for peer-to-peer, right? I mean, if I think of like the classic example, you know, in the U.S. of Venmo Cash App, here in the Netherlands, we have a very similar thing, Tiki. You know, it is the, you know, you went to the bar, you went out to dinner, you know, your friend picked up the tab and you need to send them money kind of use case. Obviously, there's like a lot of other things you could use it for, but that's sort of like the quintessential example. I just, I don't see how Twitter x you know could ever compete for that sort of general purpose use case you know particularly given how polarizing the platform in general and elon musk specifically have become so it's like on the one hand you know maybe you know can you win an audience with a certain subsection of you know die hard elon musk fanboys yeah probably but you know, payment, peer-to-peer payment um, applications specifically benefit from uh, network effects. And if you don't hit a certain penetration, it's just not terribly useful, right? So I just, I, I can't imagine a scenario like, okay, tipping, you know, and in, in the subscription features as far as compensating, you know, quote-unquote creators, which, which is not it's not new, right? Same thing Substack does, same thing plenty of other platforms do. But this this element of, you know, becoming competitive to existing peer-to-peer payment mechanisms, I just, I can't imagine that actually happening. Yeah, I think you've made such a good point around the, where it goes from here, because what, what Elon Musk and what X have done is they've they've generated wild levels of advocacy, which you would you would only dream of, like from a product perspective. Like you want people to love your product that much, but by going so niche, it means to like to acquire more customers. You you technically would have to potentially go back on some of the things you've said or change your position. It's so ideologically based, and so really for this to work, for them to get any sort of success, even in the social payment space. They'd have to potentially take away some of the things that have 
generated the advocacy with the users that they have now. And I, looking at all of Elon Musk's narrative, I don't think that's a possibility. So how you can make more money off a very fixed user group is a, is a really big question. Is it a geography question? Is it a, I don't know, actually beyond geographical, like what you could play around with there. So I think this is, that's going to be one of the big problems is he's done such a lot of work to rebrand the platform and, and set the tone. How do you then scale that? Because that's what any good business would want to do. That's what Meta and Instagram and TikTok have done very well hard to say what exit strategy could be there. Yeah, it doesn't sound like there's a clear one at all. Unless maybe buy your Tesla on X. Mm, oh, something there. That's that's for free, Elon. <laughs> I'm gonna charge you for that. Um yeah, I think it's I think it's sad to see, but definitely one to watch. And I'm pretty sure that we're gonna be tracking this very, very closely across 2024. So watch this space. Right, on to the next news item today. And this one is from Andaria. Embedded finance firm Andaria to partner with MasterCard. Andaria is an embedded finance fintech regulated by the UK and EU. Through business accounts, dedicated IBANs, and its existing service offering, Andaria helps non-financial businesses integrate payment services into their platforms. The new principal membership agreement with MasterCard means their embedded finance solutions will allow businesses to directly process and accept payments from customers using both Discover and MasterCard credit or debit cards. According to Andaria, this new partnership signifies a major milestone and a pivotal role in their mission to enhance the quality of its card and payment solutions. This follows the announcement back in October that Andaria is now a global card issuer through a partnership with Discover. So we're delighted to have its CEO, Nirav Patel, uh, here. So firstly, congratulations, Nirav, on this great news. Please do tell us a little bit more about the partnership um, and about Andaria. It's, um, and, and thank you again. So it's it's really, I guess, our evolution into into embedded finance. And maybe a good place to start is kind of what what is embedded finance for us. And there's various iterations of this, again, throughout the market. But we see a firm play with non-financial businesses and i think that's the first aim but we're aiming to enhance a service and and what's the mo if you like let our clients focus on what they're really good at and allow us to really help you focus with what we're really good at and we integrate our services into our clients ecosystem the key being that we do all of the heavy lifting from an fs standpoint so from kyc transaction we're really end-to-end -end, do all of that and so from an exposure standpoint our client does have doesn't have any exposure to the regulator um, and therefore doesn't have to have the financial burdens that come with running maintaining that infrastructure and i think that's key and then what you're doing is you turn banking or payments which typically would have been seen as a cost center into a revenue generator and i think that along with cash flow management because cash is king in this right and for a lot of these businesses cash keeps the lights on but it's it's having that liquidity in hand now if you can then offer that to your existing ecosystem it's an added number one you've got a tribal following and and i'll get to kind of why we feel like that's tribal because some of the industries that we're focusing on and if you're already loyal to the brand arguably the biggest challenge is getting that app on your phone that's already there so we've kind of done the hard yards or they've done the hard yards and now we're giving them that additional product offering which really goes and just expands the scope now why is that important with something like mastercard look what i'm or we are uber conscious of this is your not your primary card it's your secondary your tertiary but we get our clients to incentivize their clients to spend and what's important is that they have multiple means to go and utilize that cash so um, a global mastercard or a global discover card allowing you to go and spend anywhere you want effectively is now another mechanism to go and make a payment on top of your achs your faster payments and your seppers but you're now being rewarded by a loyal following to go and utilize that why is it important for the middle b i mean let's put the revenue piece to a side you can now kind of get a handle and data on spending habits and enhance the customer experience and it's utilizing that data in a smart way and again ensuring that it's all kind of compliant and that's key as well and and that's the offering and this partnership with both mastercard and discover really puts us kind of in the driving seat looking at the way that we're looking at things it's so interesting to see how embedding payments into customer journey flows 
um, really create that stickiness, I think, that you're referring to in, in loyalty and also in revenue, I suppose, by claiming interchange fees and, and, and you know, managing liquidity in a more effective way. Which, which industries or sectors or specific use cases do you see the, the kind of biggest areas that are open for small businesses to use embedded payments? The beauty of this is it's arguably sector agnostic. Um, really, what are the what are the key things? It's if you have a inherent following or a user base, then you're you're primed, and if you're ready and you understand the upside that this can bring, there is definitely an opportunity. Now, what I'm also conscious of is that Andaria can't aim kind of far and wide. We're very focused in our particular niches. So it's memberships and mobility kind of being really broad. And to go to that tribal bit, which I touched on earlier, it's actually fans. So there is nothing more tribal than a fan, right? If you've supported a be it any sport, a club that you've arguably followed maybe as a kid or got into it well, at any point in your life, you've got them and you will follow that club forever arguably now that for me feels like is is kind of really the target the beauty of that is you can you can offer embedded payments at all levels and what i mean by that is professional down to amateur down to kind of i don't know kids martial arts lessons on a weekend for example you can do that in any iteration um and you enhance the overall offering that's so fascinating. Sports institutions using payments as a mechanism and a vehicle for loyalty. Jason, what's what's your view on on this news and and I guess more broadly the opportunity with embedded embedded payments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think on this specific piece of news, you know, particularly if you're a sort of fintech infrastructure provider looking to serve as an enabler for non-financial companies that want to add some kind of financial component, having that global coverage is important and is a real competitive differentiator, right? So if you're working, you know, looking at like Stripe as an example, like what is one of the most powerful things for Stripe, about Stripe for merchants that use it? You don't have to think about, oh, you know, what is my customer paying? You know, is there account denominated in euros, dollars, pesos, something else. Where's their card issued from? You just drop in the, the code, drop in the widget, and you can accept card payments. So similarly here, by striking partnerships with uh, card networks like Discover and MasterCard to enable that global capability, I would have to imagine um, that that is something that, that is attractive for brands that operate globally that want to embed some of these capabilities. You know, thinking about embedded finance um, you know, at, a, at a wider scale, I think the, the comments Narav made are, are exactly right. I mean, there's different um, use cases or different you know, areas of business they have the potential to impact, whether it's reducing payment processing costs uh, as a source of generating incremental revenue, you know, increasing average order value, you know, or that loyalty or retention piece. I mean, a very brief anecdote. Um, you know, I was visiting the U.S. over the holidays uh, and went into a Walmart, which is not something I have frequent occasion to do. You know, and Walmart has its own mobile app. It has a wallet embedded in it. And you can begin to imagine for a gigantic retailer like Walmart, if you can shift people from using card payments where you're paying, you know, full freight interchange to loading a wallet where you now have this closed loop mechanism that lowers your payment processing costs and generates an opportunity to foster increased loyalty with those customers. So it, it you know, there are all sorts of interesting applications. And I, I really think in many ways, we're sort of at the beginning of brands uh, and particularly, um, you know, consumer focused brands, merchants, really experimenting and understanding, you know, how can they deploy these capabilities uh, both to reduce costs and increase, you know, revenue uh, and retention. Nirav, um, you know, Jason um, mentioned Stripe there as well um, as an example of, you know, a real big global company. And I think one of the things that comes to mind is the, the cost, particularly in building an infrastructure like this, um, globally. You know, with, with that in mind, what challenges have you encountered when trying to scale from a startup to becoming an international brand? Or do you see coming in the future? 
everything under the sun. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's 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 been a journey, um, but I, I think it feels like it's just getting started at the same time. I mean, to to name them all, I'd, I think I'd be here all day. But from resourcing to infrastructure to the ability to go and scale up, having your systems being able to manage and handle volumes, ensuring that all of that is kind of I guess a foundational secure element to it from a cybersecurity perspective, ensuring that you're aligned from a compliance and regulation standpoint. I mean, the the list is endless, but the the beauty of it is that again, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of trumpet the Andaria team. We've just got a, a team of fantastic individuals that come from a variety of different backgrounds that bring those strengths to the table. Um, we're literally scratching the surface with this. Um, I think this is that first step on the rung of the ladder, if you like. Um, and in terms of what's ahead, I'm very, very excited. Uh, but it, this is literally just the start. Yeah, it's a big year for you. Um, we, we haven't heard too much about sport, I've got to say, in um, talking about embedded finance and payments over the years. And it just strikes me as being such a such a fascinating and also huge potential market. I'd love to spend maybe a couple of minutes getting your thoughts a little bit more around how you see that growing. Sure. Now, let, let's uh, kind of, I gave you the initial example of just a, a fan kind of utilizing the card for, let's say, spend outside of the club, but let's maybe bring that to a match day. And I'll, I'll use football as the example. Uh, match day spend, what you want to do is ensure that you've got a read on how fans are spending within the stadium, for example. And this is more the the data element of it. But you've got bar one that sells beer, you've got bar two that sells cider. Uh, you now get a read for, right, what's selling more cider versus beer. And again, that's a, a very basic and silly example, if you like, but just having that data to hand. And again, for me, beyond the commercial element from a revenue standpoint, I think it's the value that that data can bring. You can now then embed that into the football club's e-commerce site. We can then introduce various methods of payments for merchandise and gear. And again, going back to that reward element, every football club, for example, has in some guise or another, a loyalty or a reward scheme. And if you can now marry the payments onto the back of the reward scheme, there's a natural play there. And now let's look maybe beyond that. Um, again, football, and I'll, I'll use kind of the UK. Football in the UK is not solely for the UK. It's a global global sport, um, probably one of the, I wouldn't say large brand, but a huge following. Now, if you've got the ability to then have a fan that's arguably never visited the stadium, but is still an avid follower, and now they are gaining rewards by utilizing a card that's accessible in the States, for example, and they still are driven through the football clubs app. there's an inherent fan following. And now clubs are spending millions to get out into the States. It's a captive market that they are aggressively vying for some positioning. And we're just enhancing that opportunity to go and just go that little bit further, whether it's sales of shirts, whether it's on match day getting, I don't know, a, a preseason friendly and everyone in that room being having the ability to go and spend utilizing that football club's card. That's just, it's one example. And, and you can iterate this through, I mean, through a whole host of different avenues. The really interesting one, and I, I, I think we're going to touch on it a bit later, but it's the cost of living crisis in the UK, for example. So something that we're doing to kind of turn some things on its head. It still utilizes the baseline mechanism that we've got, but we're calling it save now, buy later. So it doesn't, it doesn't affect kind of your other avenues, but it's now like a tertiary avenue to go and buy goods. But again, if you look at where we are in the UK with this, um, football clubs and without their fans, there's nothing there, right? And there is an inherent focus on kind of having, like providing for your fans. So I think creating a healthy spending habit that is then supplemented with a reward, be it kind of interchange cashback, but in the end, you're creating a savings habit that still allows them to go and capture the good or service at the end of the day, but it's just another avenue, but you're not now paying by credit or there's not late payment fees and all the other kind of stuff that happens in that space. So for me, like I said, I keep on saying it, we're just at the beginning of this. There's so, there's so many opportunities. 
Yeah, I love the example you gave about sport because I think about it. So my um, my boyfriend's brother, he is in love with this sandwich shop in Notting Hill. I don't remember the name of it, otherwise I'd plug it here. But if you buy so many sandwiches, you get the T-shirt. And I think he has to spend £600 in sandwiches. Or he could buy the shirt for like £60. But he's like, no, no, I'll just, I'll just keep buying sandwiches. Because he's like, well, I'm going to buy the sandwiches anyway. I like this place and I'll get it for free. So like... It's just encouraging loyalty. It doesn't require him to do anything specific or different. He's just paying for a sandwich. Versus I, when I went to the Rugby World Cup, because I'm a rugby fan, not a football fan, but I had the app and I was following it because I had to go to France and I was doing all this stuff. And obviously when you go over there, you get your like you get a Bev, you get a jersey because you're at the Rugby World Cup. And all of this stuff I'm doing within the estate. And like obviously they're getting my money, but I'm using this app, but not financially mm. like imagine if they just like channeled some stuff through there like there could have been some amazing wins there so yeah I definitely think it's exciting especially like you know post-covid world we're still opening up all these new experiences for people to do especially in the Middle East like what does that look like I think yeah it's super exciting to see yeah big sports investments going on in the Middle East as, as well and um, you know to your point also about football clubs earlier Nirav I mean the cost of a season ticket save save now buy later yeah. or pay later i mean yeah you're gonna have to save up for that <laughs> so not so not definitely not cheap so it sounds fascinating i'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what andaria does uh, over the over the year um and on that note we're just going to take a quick pause here back shortly and welcome back before we get back into the second half of the news, a note to go check our most recent FinTech Insider Insight show. 11FS CEO David Brayers joined by the CEO of South African FinTech Stitch, and Andrew Escobar, formerly the Director of Open Finance of Canada's MX. The three of them discuss the current state of open banking, as many countries around the world begin to push for formal open banking regimes. They discuss use cases for open banking, how regulation will help countries embed open banking more effectively into financial services, and what the global potential really is. So go check out that podcast in our feed. It's the one just below this. Should be a really interesting discussion. Right, let's get right back into the news. So next up, and this is from Finextra, Revolut faces US class action suit over biometric data collection. The fintech giant is being taken to court in Illinois for allegedly violating the Biometric Information Privacy Act, also known as BIPA. Revolut are accused of failing to disclose how applicants' biometric data is collected, stored, and destroyed in failing to secure written consent. Prosecutors also claim Revolut did not disclose third parties' participation. New users are required to submit photo identification and a selfie, which is then verified by Revolut's facial recognition technology. If found guilty, Revolut could be forced to pay $5,000 per violation, according to BIPA rules, which would mean they could owe millions in damages. So I guess, Jason, to, to come to you on this, I mean... My very kind of layman's understanding of um, BIPA is that the, the Illinois are taking a very expansive view on um, seeking damages from BIPA. And this is something that is maybe only just beginning to unravel. I mean, what, what do you think this looks like for the fintech industry? So I'll, uh, I have to acknowledge I am not an expert on BIPA, even though I uh, am originally from Illinois, and I have <laughs> I, and I have received a settlement from I think it was Shutterfly for like ninety bucks. Wow. In a BIPA class action, so so this is definitely not unique to Revolut. I mean, from from this story, I mean, I sort of have have two takeaways. You know, one is, you know, the United States is a really fun environment to do banking and financial services in. Uh, because functionally, you have you know fifty and some odds and ends uh, different places you're operating in, and and you have sort of overlaying state and federal uh, jurisdictions regulations that you need to navigate. And so it's you know certainly not unique to Revolut of of running into some issue where you know they didn't perhaps were not aware or did not adequately tailor their product to meet. Uh, statutory obligations in in a specific jurisdiction. You know the the fines, whether it is a you know government fine or a potential class action suit, to some extent, it's just the cost of doing business. 
you know? And even if a statute allows for a max of, in this case, $5,000 per violation, you know, in reality, these things tend to get negotiated down, you know, again, whether it's a civil action with, with consumers or one led by regulators. And so, you know, I'm sure it's not a fun distraction for Revolut to deal with, but, you know, it is kind of just the cost of doing business. I am curious as sort of awareness of, AI has rocketed in the past 12 months, you know, to what extent if we see incremental regulation around, you know, things like how this biometric data is used, facial rec. Um, But yeah, I would say this isn't, it's neither new nor particularly surprising. I definitely feel with this, it's not like Revolut have gone out to be like, hee hee hee, let's steal this customer's data and sell it on to other people. But I do think it says something in general about their approach to regulation, but also compliance and like all of this good stuff. Because I, we were at a behind closed doors with some of the, we had a an event on KYC and the importance of of like, not consumer duty, but essentially like consumer duty, like how are we looking out for consumers? And this is like facial data is so important. It's like in usually it's the thing that is so personal to you, tied to you. It's it's your information and it should be correctly stored, taken care of. And like you should be able to evidence that as a, as a business that they don't have those kind of checks and balances in place, I think is just it's more reflective of the I don't want to say culture because that sounds really damning but I think it is just the way Revolut do things it's more like get stuff done put it out really quickly it's all really great stuff especially looking at the new app but I think it just this is where you see they haven't like dotted their I's and crosses their T's and I think this is the disappointing thing because I I love the direction the app is moving but to do really good business and really good product and create really good user outcomes this is the stuff you should be on top of because it's such an easy win Yeah, this is something that's got to be terrifyingly complex for a fintech to wrap their heads around. I mean, you know, Jason, to your point about all of the states that exist in the US and all having different regulation and all of the different compliance things that you have to that you have to bear in mind. I mean, this certainly isn't the first and, you know, most definitely won't be the last. So I think probably the most highest profile privacy violation, shall we say, is Facebook's $650 million fine um, back in 2021. Um, and Apple Pay have just started paying out after a 2023 class action lawsuit alleging they deliberately slowed down some iPhone models in, in the US. So it just feels like with AI, um, this is only going to get more complex to manage. I mean, Nirav, I'm going to come to you on this as as the CEO of a fintech that has to bear this in mind. Do you think it's the case of, you know, Revolut maybe being a little bit irresponsible or is it actually a little bit more complicated than that? I think it's a a bit of both. So touching on Jason's comment around navigating 50 states, and again, they're not navigating 50 states, but just the nuances between all of them. Like, how how do you even think about doing that? But again, if if I'll, I'll put it on us, if we were to go and take on that mountain, if you like, I think you you set yourself at the litmus test. <laughs> Excuse me. And what is that? So GDPR in the EU and the UK, it's arguably the kind of most. It, it sets the bar. I think if you if you manage to meet the requirements of GDPR, arguably you are covered from all fifty states. And again, don't take that as any advice from my point of view. But um, <laughs> no lawyers. Yeah, here. yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but but I think that's it. It's know your space, know it well, ensure you comply. It's it's compliance culture, whatever you want to call it. Compliance is the foundation to let you go and do as a company or a fintech the things you want to really go and do. Without that foundation, you fall into avenues like this. And I think that that's the level for me. I think if you the bar's been set, go and meet it. I mean, do we do we think that the bar is in some ways maybe too high in the sense that, you know, if a customer is agreeing to the terms and conditions of a particular service provider, you know, why does it matter who that service provider contracts it out to, providing everybody acts legally? You know, why why are the burdens so high on transparency when the customer has simply already consented or am I massively simplifying this this topic for again I'll, I'll take the gdpr example is a third party can't take that data outside of what's been agreed as per the contract and go and utilize that for 
something completely outside of the space. And I think that's the defining factor. At the end of the day, um, I think Rachel, you touched on it. It was it's it's your information number one. So you want to know however many parties it may be, who has got access to that and what are they doing with it. And as long as it's within the confines of what's been agreed of as part of the service of the contract, I think fine. And if the requirement is that you have to toe the line and kind of give the names of every third party, it's what you've got to do, unfortunately. While it may seem tedious, if you look at the ramifications of data breaches and what that can do and how that can arguably ruin lives, it, it's 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 there for a reason. Um, is it 100% bulletproof? Maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, who, who's to say? No one can maybe kind of make that proclamation. But I think the bar's been set, as I said. And I think if you if you're going out and you want to enter this space, you have to comply. Yeah, I also think talking more broadly about terms and conditions, they are just they're a myth. Like GDPR is there, but are you really reading those terms and conditions? So I was looking at you know if you use like. Um, if you're using an open banking solution and it's powered by a third party provider, so then you say, yes, OK, I'm happy for this person to use my data. But then as part of that, they they might then sell it onto third party providers. So then you have to click down in to see all of those third party providers. Then you have to look up. It's a company name as well. It's not necessarily the operating name of the company. So look up what that person does. So if you really delve into this, you don't know what you're consenting to. And I'm speaking as someone who relatively understands open banking works in the finance space what does the average consumer really know about what they're ever signing up to and they don't and we can't we can't overregulate that because there's no way to to regulate it fairly but i think that's why you have to act in the best interest of consumers and being super transparent where you can and i think that's where all of these Yes, GDPR is there and the whole cookie policy like, oh, yeah, we'll give customers the option, but we need to be more transparent. And I think there are a few companies that do that well. And, you know, some websites you go to and they're like, yeah, you know what? The first option is actually, no, I don't want cookies. Like more of that rather than, no, no, we've done our terms and conditions. Yeah, that's great. But what have you actually told your consumer or helped them out with? Yes, obviously run a business. Selling to third parties might help you run your business. But do that in a way that you say it boldly like it is rather than it's it's hidden under subsection c clause i a a or whatever i certainly am always guilty of just pressing accept or no. No, every, everybody is guilty of just pressing. <laughs> yeah no <laughs> i am that doesn't. person you are that person i will if they have automatically selected them i will spend the time to unselect everyone you cannot just steal my data you have to ask nicely and tell me what for so I think just going around the houses a little bit, it sounds like, you know, yes, maybe there could have been a little bit more diligence here, but ultimately this is something that does happen, you know, Jason, to your point around the fact that I think this is just a part of doing business in some in some senses. I also think there's something very interesting about the product. You know, a lot of banking apps sort of pride themselves on how fast it is to onboard, right? Mm. So this this particular fine or violation seems to be due to biometric data and, well, you know, part of the amazing thing about the Revolut app is how incredibly fast and simple and easy it is to, you know, verify biometrically. So that's another interesting thing. Yeah. And I think the only, like, they're getting fine now because they're big. Like, that's that's the reality of being, like, big is that, like, the regulator looks at you and they look a little bit too hard and then they're like, oh, there's a fine. And we're not talking about the fact that banks get fined all the time. This is almost just part of the operating cost. It comes with earning a load of money. And Revolut are doing that now. Like their profitability looks excellent. Yes, they have high operating costs. I think like, I can't remember the exact stats from last year and their administrative expenses have gone up. But the part of that, I think they factor this stuff in. And I think it just, it shows them being a more mature business, being subject to the same standards, what that means for their banking license. Always the question every time we talk about them. Like, nice. I think it's still this, that's the what this means for them getting their bank license, the more fines they have pre-license, how can they move into a position where they're like, no, we promise we've adhered to everything. Please give us a license. Like this, the standard is so high, especially in the UK. So I think work to be done on the <laughs> on the compliance piece before they get there. And it certainly feels like uh, privacy is going to be a big uh, theme um, continuing in 2024. 
Right, moving on to the next news item, and this one is from Yahoo Finance. Barclays and Santander slash rates as UK mortgages get cheaper. Barclays have cut their two-year fixed mortgage to just 4.1%, while Santander are introducing a five-year fixed at 3.89%. The move follows other big lenders in the UK, including Halifax and HSBC, who also announced an interest rate cut on their products. The pricing war has been triggered amid growing speculation that the Bank of England will lower the national base rate this year. The base rate is currently at 5.25%, the highest since the 2008 financial crisis. So I I feel like the whole country in the UK at the moment is sort of holding their breath. Um, Rachel, is it time to start being optimistic again? I really hope so, because I'm a renter and I have a five-year deed, and I would like to not pay that deed and just, like, buy a house. Um... But I, yeah, the like the article states, this is just the latest in ongoing rates war between all the big banks. But, you know, it is a great start to 2024. Um, HSBC co-op, like a few banks in the mainstream making some of the changes. But all of this has been influenced by the swap rates, um, which I think they set around 4.2%, which is lower than the base rate, which gives us a little bit of wiggle room. But it's I think it's still short term for us to really see that, you know, the longer term rate changes we'll need to see the base rate shift and we they're predicting i think i've seen a prediction that it might drop to four percent by the end of 2024 that's still a long way to go from our like pre-covid rates and so i um i was reading a report by uk finance which has said like we're still i think 2024 we'll still see some of the fallout from some of the changes to the rate but 2025 we'll start to see some of that lift off so I think it's more a case of not to be optimistic just yet, but definitely to see, you know, some positives coming. My question is how that looks for the current homeowners in the market in the UK and like the amount of people who are still at this point of they were on a 1% or 2% rate and they have to remortgage now. They're still getting a rate of 4% and having to find that money somewhere all of the people who've gone into arrears, I, I read a stat that um, mortgage arrears were forecast to rise from 105,000 cases at the end of 2023 uh, with arrears of over 2.5% to 128,000 by the end of 2024. So, you know, there's there's still a lot of damage to be undone in the, in the UK home ownership space. But, you know, on the up at least, we're starting to see <laughs> the bads ending and it's just now how the market responds to not just offer the short-term wins, but the long-term support for the customers. Concepts like save now, buy later. That's great. Let's not put our consumers in debt. <laughs> but yeah, some, some positives at least. Yeah, so maybe slightly um, less unoptimistic. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> Jason, um, are people also feeling the pinch in your part of the world? What does it look like there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the one one part about the UK situation that that uh, I think is unique, or at least relatively unique, is the, is the very short remortgage window. So, I mean, here in the Netherlands, um, you can choose to fix your rate, I believe, as short as one year or as long as ten on a 30-year mortgage. And of course, the U.S. has its weird uh, 30-year fixed-rate product, which generally doesn't exist anywhere else. But but certainly, I mean, I, I don't think a month goes by where I don't get some kind of email that some service I use is, is increasing its rate, whether it's uh, the gym, our internet provider, cell phone provider. Uh, so you certainly have this creeping up of, of costs and, and, you know, one of the big ones being energy. I mean, after uh, the Ukraine war started, I think, I mean, this is obviously anecdotal, but I think my energy bill more than doubled. No, I think it almost tripled. And, and it did moderate a little after that. But but certainly the sort of cost of living pressure, uh, you know, I think is a problem, you know, more or less everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, and Nirav, what's your view on that? You know, do we think the UK and Europe is is in isolation or, you know, maybe the US is going to do a little bit better? I think it's an interesting one. I think UK and Europe are definitely, I, I guess, at, at the struggling end of things, if you like. And it's it's been a difficult 23 uh, and 24 
although we're moving in the right direction as we discuss it it's it's still a long way away and god forbid if you're already on a fixed contract in the uk i mean you're two maybe three years away from seeing any upside so i i think there is definitely a long way to go uh, and it'll be interesting to see how things play out from a u.s perspective it, there always seems to be a knock-on effect. It'll be interesting to see how things kind of play out. I think there's the the presidential election maybe will have some say in the overall process, but from a, it, it, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm keen to talk a little bit about um, the impact to fintechs um, and also in banking in general. I mean, Surely the assumption is that in a higher interest environment, maybe a bank does a little bit better, right? Because they're earning a little bit more um, of their lending and their deposits. Um, but Jason, I want to come to you on this. I mean, do you do you do you think as we look into the future with interest rates coming down and inflation coming down that that might have a direct correlation to the fintech industry, or do you think it's maybe a little bit too hazy to say right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the the impact of you know rates is is well known and well understood, and and we've seen that right. Whether it's with um, you know a bank like Monzo or Starling in the UK, whether it's Wise, uh, whether it's Bank, which is a, a neo bank here in the Netherlands, you know they've benefited from rising rates. I mean, particularly in the ECB, because prior to the most recent rate hiking cycle. Um, the core uh, core interest rate was negative, right? So Bank, which is kind of a kind of a weird idiosyncratic story, but you know they had a lot of their customer depo- deposits parked at the ECB, and they were paying I forget like twenty five or fifty bips to park customer deposits there. So they were effectively you know losing money on the money they had stashed at the central bank. You know that reversed whatever about a year eighteen months ago, and is absolutely a tailwind to neobanks that have a bank charter and can benefit from the rising rate environment. You know, on the flip side, you know, what has been very, very painful, I mean, not just for fintechs, but essentially for everybody about increasing interest rates is the um, inverse impact on valuations, right? So, I mean, you've seen particularly growth companies, so tech companies, fintech companies have their valuations drop dramatically. I don't want to say that interest rate is the only component there, but it did certainly feel like that popped, you know, a bit of the 2020, 2021 mania and brought some of those revenue, you know, revenue multiples or earnings multiples back to a more uh, historic sort of norm, right? I, you could also argue that there were just some inflated expectations of some companies in fintech where, you know, those valuations you know, was was Klarna worth forty seven billion dollars? It was a firm. I forget what it IPO'd at, but whatever, twenty thirty billion dollars. Um, so yeah, I mean, interest rates. You know, depending on what what a given fintech's business model is, how it derives revenue, um, you know, could have positive, could have negative impacts. Yeah, absolutely. And just to conclude on this um, this topic just want to go around the table. Does anyone believe that we will ever go down to less than 1% levels um, as they were at before COVID? I I want to say like, oh, like anything's possible, but I just, I see the way the world is moving and the way that we can charge, the way we've slowly increased our prices for everything, like particularly around like discretionary goods. I feel like that's now just a given and it's expect like, for example, Taylor Swift tickets. They were super expensive. And like young girls want to go see young girls and other people want to go see Taylor Swift and you will just pay that amount of money and people were willing to do that even in this environment. So if this is the environment that people can charge money like that, then what does that mean for in an environment where you have more cash to burn, I I just feel like perhaps not. Any other thoughts around the table? I'd concur with that. I think we're we're a long way off being back to call it the good old days. Um, but it, there a lot has changed. I think inflationary pressures continue to mount. I I don't see that kind of abating in any way. So unless there's a material change in the world, which arguably with what we've seen, be it the Ukraine war or, or be it kind of all the other atrocities that are happening, 
that has an impact with everything else from our day to day. And then until something materially changes there, I, I, I don't see any great change going back to kind of pre 1% or 1% rates. Yeah, I mean, I think you have the factors that, that these guys just explained, which, you know, you could make a case that are likely to contribute to structurally higher inflation than the world has seen in a long time. And as an extension of that, if you have structurally higher inflation because of supply chain disruptions or sanctions or whatever, um, a knock-on impact of that is higher nominal interest rates such that real interest rates are positive. Um, you know, on, on the flip side, it's like, you know, part of the reason why, you know, particularly the United States, um, but other other developed um, economic areas have been able to have, some might argue, artificially low interest rates for so long is what is often referred to as the global savings glut, a lot of which is coming out of China, right? So um, other economies that are buying up debt instruments, T-bills, treasuries that are issued in the U.S., which enable rates to stay some would argue, artificially low. If if you subscribe to the notion that we're seeing this sort of decoupling and realignment um, where perhaps China and, and other advanced economies with budget surpluses or current account surpluses are unwilling to plow those funds back into U.S. dollars and particularly U.S. debt instruments, that could also you know, be supportive of interest rates over the medium to long term. There are just so many geopolitical factors which are which are uncertain. It's such a fascinating conversation. Right. Okay, now for Big Click Energy. A quick look at some of the more click-worthy news this week. First up, Rachel, what do you have for us? Well, well, well. Crypto enthusiasts rejoice. The US Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, approve new Bitcoin exchange-traded products or ETFs. So this is actually from the SEC themselves. On the 10th of January, the SEC approved the listing and trading of a number of spot Bitcoin exchange traded product slash ETP shares. According to a statement from the SEC chair, Gary Gensier. Sorry, Gary. <laughs> I have often said that the commission acts within the law and how the courts interpret the law. Beginning in 2018 and through March 2023, the commission de- disapproved more than 20 exchange rule filings for spot Bitcoin ETPs. We are now faced with a new set of filings similar to those we have disapproved in the past. Circumstances, however, have changed based on these circumstances and those discussed more fully in the approval order. I feel the most sustainable path forward is to approve the listing and trading of these spot Bitcoin ETP shares. The Guardian and Pretty much any newspaper at this stage has called it a watershed moment for the world's largest cryptocurrency and the broader crypto industry. And some of the approved uh, ETPs are expected to have begun trading before this podcast even goes live. So I'm going to be honest, I consider myself a crypto skeptic, but even I have been keeping an eye on this one. The change in regulation has led to an increase in the value of Bitcoin and uh, in similar currencies like Ethereum, which in uh, from... 2020's valuation of 16,000 US dollars is now looking around 46, 47,000 US dollars, which is obviously it's a hugely volatile currency. Let's not take that one for granted. Um, But definitely shows that the um, this was a moment where it was make or break for Bitcoin. And it definitely it definitely made annual analysts. Sorry. Analysts valuing the ETFs are predicting anything from $55 billion to $100 billion over the next one to five years. So again, it's a positive story, but it's clear that there's a lot of uncertainty ahead for the impact on cryptocurrencies and the consumers investing. The news heralds change in both two ways. One, broader participation, which would be great in theory, um, but also new ways to counter legitimacy concerns. Potentially, this could be the first in a number of regulators making changes in the space. Of course, still a lot of concerns from crickets. Crickets? I'm going to start that again. Um, Of course, still a lot of concerns from critics. The SEC itself still does not endorse Bitcoin itself, and there are ways to go to undo the damage from the illegitimate illegitimate activities it finances it does feel like this was pushed across not because they super wanted to but more because they super had to um it's been a 10-year battle pretty much and there are still clear risks it opens up by creating um 
a pathway to a fairly volatile cu- currency to retail consumers who might not be super au fait with what it means. And so to me, this is exciting, but it sounds like all regulation with new with new changes, it comes a pressing need to ensure we're looking out for consumers. Um, excited to see what the answer is. But my favorite part about the story, which we haven't mentioned, is that X, our favorite platform that we mentioned early, got hacked or the SEC account got hacked and they leaked the news early, which then had an impact on the valuation of Bitcoin, which proves let's not let's not F about with Bitcoin. Oh, X, they keep proving their value <laughs> in all sorts of different places. Uh, it's incredible. <laughs> The, the thing I thought about this, it might be good for my fledgling crypto portfolio, which is fledgling and terrible. But we would um, never advise anyone to make any investment decisions based on this podcast. Terrible. Yeah, thank you for that <laughs> disclaimer, Rachel. <laughs> right. Um, and now mine. Ant Group eyes up $200 million uh, in an acquisition of multi-safe pay. And this one's from Finextra. China's Ant Group is reportedly looking to expand westward as it looks to buy the Dutch payments firm. Multisafe Pay provides payment acquiring and processing services for all major cards and supports more than 30 payment methods with the user base of over 18,000 business merchants. Ant Group's other ventures include Alipay, Online Bank, MyBank, BNPL provider Huabei, and Singaporean payment platform 2C2P. So the background and context of this is actually quite important. Um, Ant Group and Alipay have really been trying to expand beyond China's borders for some years now. Um, And there are many reasons behind that. There are regulatory pressures in China and risks and threats with just staying in the domestic market. But also the fact that, you know, at least since the end of COVID and China's borders opened up a lot more, You've been seeing, you know, Chinese travelers traveling around the world and therefore using Alipay um, in all of these countries. And, you know, we've been seeing um, merchants bring on Alipay as a method for payment. So there's a lot of organic growth um, in doing that. And I, and I certainly think that Ant Group have a mission to become a totally global um, provider. So I think it's really interesting to see. I mean, I don't know 100% for sure whether this is their first major investment in Europe, but it certainly is a significant one. And I think it is a sign of things to come. You know, they're also hiring significantly all over Europe. Um, so this will be another interesting one to follow over the uh, over the coming years. All right. And now it's time for the and finally section of the show, a look at something a little bit more offbeat from the news this week. And this week, we've got an article from This Is Money. Pothole insurance claims surge to record high. According to UK car insurance firm Admiral, claims against potholes have gone up by 40% in the last year. They alone received 1,324 claims in 2023. Their previous record was 1,057 back in 2018, owing largely to damage caused by the beast from the east. We love our... um, titles in the UK. However, the number of pothole repairs in the UK has actually dropped. Admiral credits the rise of modern vehicles being more complicated and more expensive to repair. They're also predicting a spike in potholes due to Storm Henk and other adverse weather. I mean, for those of you who live in the UK, who have been in the UK in the last few months, you will know that it is just not stopped storming. Uh, it has been one after the other. Um, so what do we think is going on here? Are more people reporting potholes or are there more potholes? I I just feel like it's a very good way to claim money back if you, in this current environment. It's the kind of thing where like in normal, like I say in normal times, but these are normal times. Like back in the day, you'd be like, ugh, annoying, but I'll just, I'll get over it. Whereas now you're like, no, bloody well fix this pothole or you know, actually compensate me for my time. And I think that's kind of how people feel like a little bit frustrated that the, this is a broader point on the UK infrastructure. Like we are just not designed for bad weather. Mm. Like it snows a little bit, it rains a little bit, the trains are called off, the buses are diverted. Like we're just not set up for this. And so I think people are probably a little bit sick of that. And rightly so. I myself had an incident with a pothole, although not in a vehicle. I just fell over one so deep in Glasgow that I tore my knee open so badly. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the next week the pothole was fixed. And I was like, can you even claim on a pothole like that? So yeah, I I also would like to see them fixed. And no, I did not claim, but I should have. <laughs> All the uh, personal damage uh, lawyers are now going to be calling you up, uh, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> it was years ago as a student. I didn't know any better. Take note, lawyers. <laughs> um, any other thoughts from the panel? Who's had to claim on a 
pothole damage. You know, I I drove a car in the UK exactly one time in Edinburgh, and I'm embarrassed to say within about five minutes of, of driving this rental car, I had smashed the mirror off of it. Uh, that doesn't so, yeah. sound like the pothole. That was not the pothole. <laughs> that was that was my um my American not used to driving on the opposite side, uh, and, and I have to say here in Netherlands, pleasantly pothole free. So uh, I will take a pass on the rest of this question. And the Netherlands has amazing infrastructure. Just don't tell imagine, the Dutch that like, though. They don't. They don't. They they, they all think it's gotten worse over time and, and right. compared to what I'm used to it's fantastic the bar was so high for them though like now you go like I, I went to Copenhagen and everything was just so efficient and I was like ah, continental Europe like travel infrastructure is so good <laughs> Nirav we're not known for our good roads in the UK are we we're not um, and my claim to fame on on potholes is I managed to puncture a tire once and now that I know that everyone seems to be claiming I definitely missed a trick <sighs> foolish should have claimed should have claimed I um actually did damage my car from a pothole but because it's got a lowered suspension um the uh the mechanic told me I was just a fool for buying a car with a lowered suspension in uh in London and then just told me off for 10 minutes. And then I got really scared and didn't claim. Is this your blue car though? Like the very old sustainable. It's like a convertible. It's like a car that if you do any damage to, you're only ever going to get made fun of for it. So yeah, I possess the world's most useless car in London. Um, And a final note on this is a public service um, announcement. If you do find a pothole near you, call aging pop star Rod Stewart, uh, who will take it upon himself to repair his own local roads back in 2022. So he seems to be a bit bored these days. So you can see him there with a shovel. He's a very nice bloke. Yeah. I have no basis for that other than my uh, boyfriend's mum said he was a very nice bloke. He used to be an undertaker, apparently, I think. Real appreciation for life. Yes. And on that note, that wraps up this week's FinTech Insider News. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Nirav? Come and visit andaria.com. And if you can find me on LinkedIn, that's another great avenue. Uh, You'll see lots about us and just pop by and say hi. Awesome. Jason? Uh, They can subscribe to the newsletter at fintechbusinessweekly.com or find me on LinkedIn or X where they can send me a peer-to-peer payment sometime, (laughs) maybe. Give Jason a tip. Yeah. (laughs) Buy you a Tesla. And Rachel? Um, On LinkedIn, I'm Rita Rachel Pandian or here at 11FS. And as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn at DavidBG. And thank you very much for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.